Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Hope you've had a good week. So today's topic is going to be something that's a little more reality-based. You could say what isn't or what hasn't been reality-based. But what I want to get to is really, what is the secret to weight loss? And it's also saying, what is the nub of how to do this correctly? And the opposite of that is, why do people fail on a ketogenic diet or what they perceive as keto? So let me just give you a bigger context like I usually do, and then I'll get back into the gauntlet of the topic for the day. And so the bigger context is, you know, it's funny, we hear so much about keto and we think that there's all these experts all over the place that can tell us what to do. 90% of what you hear is probably wrong. And 90% of what you hear is probably from marketers that have not done keto at all, but they know how to spell the word and they know how to put it on their package. And they know that it should be something about higher fat and lower carbs. And that's about as far as they go. There really, there, there is no sort of like government stricture. They can call it, you can eat banana peels and call it keto. You could eat thumbtacks and call it keto. That would be a little dangerous. So you probably couldn't call that keto. Meaning is there, there's no ramifications or consequences of being totally irrelevant and yet using that word in terms of creating some set of instructions or ingredients in a package of processed foods. So given that, that there's no accountability to this is what keto is or no accountability to the definition and the definition of what keto is, is that are you in ketosis while you're on this diet? Ketosis is measured by a ketometer. Ketosis is measured by measuring your ketones. Pretty straightforward. So when people say keto, that's what they're meaning. It's kind of like this high school little group of people that were the keto group and you want to be part of the cool group, so you want to be part of keto too. And unfortunately, nobody knows what they're doing. And that's not all their fault, by the way, because let's go, where did the experience come from? in terms of understanding keto and implementing keto and who really benefited from it. Uh, Well, we know that the ketogenic diet started back in 1925, though it was conceptualized around 1921 by William Wilder in terms of coining it. And that was in response to the previous decades of fasting, both for diabetes and for other conditions that were helpful, but led to death if they went too far. So obviously something needed to be corrected. 
And so as the halfway was this thing called the Allen's diet. The Allen's diet was for type 1 diabetics that would fast for three weeks and then they go on a hypocaloric. And so that's basically a slow starving. And so they did live a lot longer than normal type 1 diabetics, but they lived a terrible life. Can you imagine that being always on a hypocaloric diet? And somebody needed to do something to sort of right the boat, to choose a better direction. And that's where the term came from, ketogenic diet. If there was only a diet that could produce the ketones that they that are produced when people are fasting, that maybe we could do something. So that's what they began. They started dropping the carbs. Okay, so that's the background. So now all through these decades forward, it lost its popularities post-40s and 50s when certain... And it was just for epilepsy, by the way. So the ketogenic diet was strictly for epilepsy. So it was for pediatric epileptics. And then as they grew older, they became adults. So epilepsy in general, but mostly for pediatric epilepsy. What they found was that for those who were given the diet young enough, usually adolescents or less, and really either were controlled, their diets were controlled by others, so they had no choice but to comply to a very low carb, 20 grams or less per day of carbohydrates, and fairly high fat, if they were compliant or forced to be compliant for a period of three years, they then pretty much could go back to a normal diet and still retain the benefits of having been on a ketogenic diet. It was not 100% successful, but it was much more successful than anything that had ever existed before. So then anti-seizure medications came into play, and the pills are a lot easier to take than this oily diet, right? This high-fat diet. And so the diet sort of went out of vogue and parents were tired of having to be the the referees and the to make it all happen for their kids. So it didn't get forgotten. It just became unpopular. There were still a few places in the country that were still doing it, certainly out of Johns Hopkins. And I covered that story long ago for the history of evolution and history of the ketogenic diet. So what I'm leading up to, it wasn't until the 1990s till the Charlie Foundation, Jim Abrams, who's the was the director of the uh, airplane series and police academy, and his son, Charlie, was epileptic, and he rediscovered the ketogenic diet, and he really deserves a lot of praise for doing that. But it's still about epilepsy, okay? So you're getting, it's been about epilepsy, it's been about epilepsy, it's been about epilepsy, it's been about epilepsy. So when we hear about let's do keto, most doctors are saying, what, are you epileptic? Well, so the application of keto to other things like diabetes, like weight loss, is incredibly new. It's less than 10 years old. You have Verta Health there, what, five years? Verta Health has created a structure, a reproducible structure for type 2 diabetics and obese individuals. Primarily, it's about di- reversing diabetes. And so that's just barely five years, and they have barely a 50% success rate. So this is where we are. So when you come with these experts that are floating around the atmosphere someplace that you meet, they're going to tell you all about how to do keto, and everybody from their gym to the locker room to your sister or brother, they don't know about how to do keto. There are certain things that need to be put in place for you to achieve success and for your body to make such a change. So we're going to go over some of that. But it's important to understand you're in such a very, very, very recent application of the classic ketogenic diet. And the classic ketogenic diet is 20 grams or less of carbohydrates per day. Otherwise, 
known as a very low carbohydrate diet, and it's one and a half grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. I mean, it's not that I have this memorized, it's just that's what the classic ketogenic diet is. And the reason that you have to have your protein low enough, but also high enough, is that protein also can be a source for glucose. And glucose is one of the triggering effects for epilepsy. So all this was for epilepsy. So to transfer that, my gosh, the this low-carb, high-fat, and by the way, for very severe epileptic, it was high-fat. We're talking in the percentage way of looking at things, not so much in the grams way of looking at it. In the percentage of their calories, you're up to 80 to 90% of their calories are from fat. So for these kids, they're having to be sort of boxed in and seldom are they willfully doing this themselves, of course, that they have to be boxed in for a period of time to really sort of saturate their system, really saturate the system and they are locked into having to be fat adapted, which really means using fat primarily as your source of fuel that is converted into ketones in your liver and passed on into your mitochondria. Okay, so that's what it took for them to get benefits. And not everyone got benefits, but there is a significant difference for those who just hunkered down or boxed in, however you want to look at it, and that's what they did, and they progressed, and there's great benefits. And the whole renaissance of through uh, Jim Abrams, who ushered in that era of you know, Nightline and all these other programs. He was a master, perfect person to have a problem or to help solve a problem, I should say. So all that was in the, the mid-90s to the late 90s. When I was in medical school, it's funny how I didn't hear anything about the ketogenic diet. I think, looking back, my med school, by the way, tangentially, had their agenda, and their agenda was really a plant-based diet. So in hindsight, I look back and saying, I didn't tell everybody that they had to be plants, but I was a very strong plant-based diet agenda, for lack of a better word. So coming forward from that period, and we hear about, oh, keto is great for weight loss. Keto is great for, there's certain diseases like McCurdle's disease. And I talked to Dr. Westman about that back in the interview. And that's pretty interesting. You know, and then you have people that basically have very specific mutations in which they cannot use glucose very well. So they have what they call a glucose a GLUT4 problem. There's five different kinds of GLUT4. So GLUT, it's a receptor that carries glucose into the cell and eventually into the mitochondria and so on. And if they can't do that very well, they're not going to get the glucose. So they need to figure out another source of energy. So that's why the ketogenic diet was, huh, there's ketones? Who would have thought? So when they get into ketogenic diet, suddenly they have energy because they didn't really have much of a choice of energy before. They weren't getting much in the way of glucose to feed their mitochondria. So except for pretty, I will call them esoteric, except for some pretty esoteric mutation-caused disturbances of metabolism, it was only epilepsy. It was only about epilepsy, only and forever. So when you hear about, oh, keto is great for weight loss, says who? You know, really, there's, there's no great studies on this. There is nothing you can point to, and it is so brand spanking new and it has been so unfortunately corrupted by marketing, misrepresenting it, that people have had very bad outcomes. So let's talk about the time I spent in an obesity clinic and you know visiting patients with Dr. Westman. Uh, he was the first to admit that he had, at best, 
a 50% success rate. And that was with appropriate education. People came to him appointment after appointment, and they went to some of their collective classes that he would have and that most obesity centers have for lifestyle-oriented weight loss, and it just didn't work out. So this isn't wrong. That This isn't a sneaky little secret that it did not work out. What is, what can be, in my view, what can be improved on that amount of research is further labs. And that's where we come in. And this isn't a pitch for our program. This is a pitch for common sense. Let's look. Let's look at the bigger landscape. If the road up the mountain is blocked for 50% of the people, maybe we can make another road. Or maybe we can go back and understand why that road is blocked. That's the common sense approach here that I'm talking about. So what, what does that translate into in reality? It translates into, let's open up some of the labs, not like zillions of other labs, but just a few of others. The glucagon, the thyroid, adrenal glands, environmental exposures, maybe. That would be an outlier because that's a whole different sort of special training to look at that. Uh, but let's look at you know nutritional deficiencies that are induced by the diet that they had. Let's look at what's going on with their hormones. Not so much that we're going to plug in hormones, by the way. No, that's not why we're looking at hormones. We're looking at hormones to see if we can see a pattern. So did you know, for example, let's say I'm talking to a group of of men in their mid-50s to mid-60s. I would say mid-40s to mid-60s, okay? That 20-year age bracket. And they're all obese. Not hugely obese. That's just, you know, let's say ballpark about 100 pounds. And they're all five and a half to six feet tall as an average. And they, in part, are interested in losing weight because they've been diagnosed with low testosterone. So, I got some good news for them. You know, it's not a mutation cause thing. It's not an environmental cause thing for the most part. You know, they they have no real clear history that they were living in a toxic part of the world. But as we all get older, as we know, we all get a little bit toxin, you know, bound. No high heavy metals and mercury and so on and so forth. So what does that leave? Well, to tell them, I say, you know, when you have, and I'll show them a picture of a one of those donuts I've told you about before, those big donuts that come from the donut bar in San Diego and a few other places. I think there's three, three places in the United States to have these huge artistically created donuts. And for one, I said, I just need to show you the picture of this and it will change your hormones. Why is that? Well, what happens is, in, in truth, is that when your blood sugar goes up, your insulin chases it, right? It goes up afterwards because it wants to bring your, your glucose down your blood glucose down. So when your insulin goes up, it actually blocks an enzyme. It's called an aromatase inhibitor. I'm not going to go into the details, but it basically blocks that. And so consequently, we, you, you very quickly convert your testosterone into estrogen as a guy, as a man. And so that's really where most of that cause comes from. You can find all these other causes. Maybe they're exposed to this, that, the other thing. And those are all valid reasons. But for the majority, we're talking about 80 or 90%. The majority is their persistently high insulin spikes that because of their glucose spikes, because of the food they're eating and very refined carbs spikes, binges, I should say. Not even binges, just eating them. This is the thing that prevents their testosterone from staying around as testosterone and quickly gets converted over to estrogen. And that's why they have what they call the man boobs, the gynomastia. So all that is simply a natural reality that responds to the food that they're eating. So what are you going to do with that? Well, first you got to educate them and saying this is what's happening. 
let's not eat these donuts. Let me change this for you a little bit. So you have to get them. You do have to decrease the carbs and you can't do that overnight because there's a lot of, your body wants that. You've, you've trained it to want that. And you can go deep into dopamine and so on and so forth. Talked about that in another podcast. But for the most part, you got to move away from that. You have to move away from carbs and it takes, in reality, a gradual process. The people who say, I'm just going to stop tomorrow and I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to stop carbs tomorrow and I'm going to immediately start seeing some changes. Well, those people are the first that are probably going to quit. They're just, you have to be kind to your body. You have to treat it as a really expensive car. You know, you are taking care of it. You are training it to be a better car, but the apparatus underlying is quite fine. You just can't make these snap things. And so some people can drop down to 20 and hang there for weeks, but usually I find that you really have to drop by gradations, drop to 100, drop to 50. And people have to track this. And that was one of the secrets, if you will, the secrets of losing weight on a ketogenic diet is tracking. Do you know what 20 grams of carbohydrates look like? Well, they look different if they're a salad, a leafy salad. They look different if they're a piece of bread, which you should never have. You shouldn't have the greens or the roots vegetables. You know, those are the ones that are really going to trigger your insulin. So there's that education that has to happen. There's that, and the education is just not overnight. It's because you're trying to start a habit. You're trying to bring the body, that person's metabolism, back to what it's always been back to what it was in former generations. You know, if you go back and you look at, and you can do this, you can just go onto Google and you can look for menus of the 1800s, you know, and and say, all right, you want the menu of the Titanic. You want the menu of the 1860s. What do you find? It's 90% protein. And we're talking proteins of, of meat, chicken, poultry, eggs, fish. I think I already said fish, you know, and all the different kind of fish row in there too some veggies. The reason their veggies weren't there, it's like, how could they have, you know, they just don't get preserved. There wasn't any way to harvest them and send them someplace. They either had to been grown locally that you actually picked up for that day. And there really wasn't that much of it, you know, and how far and how long were you going to keep it in your home? Were you always going to be ferreting back and forth between your home and the market, however big that was and wherever that was, your salads and so on? No, most people didn't have those kind of salads. It was very little. It was almost like garnish. So that was the reality of the 1800s. It was even more so in the 17 and the 16, blah, 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 back there. So it was primarily protein. And so now when you see uh, people living, most people don't have protein. In fact, they're, and I understand this, is with great sympathy, I see the confusion that comes in the media. How do people really know what to eat? Especially with all these self-proclaimed authorities. And it is disturbing. It's just misinformation. Some of it's very consciously misinforming you. And others are just, can you say, benignly misinforming you? Um, either way, it's just been such a historic change that it really is about protein first and about dropping your carbs and then secondarily dropping your fats. So anyways, moving away from the ketogenic diet that is strictly for, and has always been strictly for epilepsy, there isn't a lot of data saying, oh my gosh, look at all these people. I know there's a lot of Facebook groups out there and people go, oh no, there's the evidence. It's in these Facebook groups. It's amazing. Well, that's true. Let's see how long it stays. And I find that 
when and when you do, if you should you participate in any of these Facebook groups, as you'll find there's a migration, an evolution on a per person basis that those who really come into it and really have the determination to make this change, what they actually evolve to, what they change gradually is that they start dropping the fat. So it's low carb to eventually might even be no carb to they have their protein is usually well above one and a half grams per kilograms of body weight. Could be twice that. And that's fine. The thing about protein, you can't overeat protein by itself. You can't sit down and say, I'm going to have five steaks. Well, after a pound or two, depending on how big you are, and if you had nothing else but that, and we're saying moderately fatty, not real fatty, this is not ribeye, is that you're going to get full. And that's it. So if you just focused on protein, fish would be the same. Chicken would be the same. You can't eat as much of it as you would with uh, carbohydrates. You can overeat. You know, there's, there's no measurement there. It's like, hmm, bring in the carbohydrates. Well, finish that donut. Think we'll have another one. Or whatever your source of carbs are. So, and if you focused on salads primarily, you know, of real, like earth to you, natural food, whole foods, carbohydrates of leafy salads, there's usually only so much of that you can eat. But they are a little more, you can scarf a lot more salad than you can, you can overeat salads, few people do, but you can't overeat protein. It's just, and I don't, and when I say protein now, it is protein in the whole food sense of the word. You see the chicken on the plate, you see the steak on the plate, and the fish, and so on and so forth. It's not four scoops of collagen powder in my coffee. I can have more of this every day. I think that's an idiot. That's not the way. That's processed foods. It's bogus. And once you get into processing food, it changes the equation completely. In dealing with the macros of fat, carbohydrates, and protein, and dealing with each category as a whole food area, and in the carbs, pulling out the grains and the root vegetables. Root vegetables are anything that grow in the ground, right? A carrot would be a root vegetable. A beet would be a root vegetable. And I'm not saying they're unhealthy, by the way. I know you can argue against me and saying, the beets, are you kidding? Uh, beets are the, they have, you have the basis for um, glutathione and a lot of other things and so on and so forth. And it's all true, but it's a lot of carbohydrate. And it's a lot of sugar. That's where sugar beets come from, as opposed to sugar cane. So, that's kind of what happened. That's where our diet has been. I mean, the documentation, and you don't have to be an archaeologist to go back to the documentation to see that most people ate a primary protein diet a hundred years ago, now more than a, say a hundred, well, maybe a hundred years ago. And there's a big difference. And that's why they were so lean looking. And yeah, I, I used to think that it was because they did such physical activity outside. That's true. That was a component that more people were physically active, but in my own awareness, and my own sort of trajectory here, in my own sort of migration from having to save my own life and, and Judy's as well, to evolving still within the ketogenic diet to protein, and even in the protein, right, the whole food sense of the word, proteins moving forward and saying, how can this be like so satisfying? It's a remarkably satisfying, but it has evolved. You know, it took us a while to get fat adapted. And from fat adapted, we thought that was it. And then we started realizing, you know, something's not quite right here. Something really isn't, yeah, I lost some of maybe the extra excess weight, but it wasn't until we really started switching to a higher protein and pretty much dropped the carbs completely, except for when she makes her special ice cream every so often, which isn't very often, that 
things started to change. I feel fitter than I've ever felt before, and I'm speaking about high school now. But when I look at Judy relative to her family, her family are diabetics, histories of you know multiple generations of diabetics. And some of the people were very heavy, very heavy in their family. She's unlike them completely. And it really is about well, her determination, certainly, and our sort of orientation of let's work together to see if we can save our lives and really turning over all the stones and doing the research and looking into all this. It's been remarkable. So I see this as a very easy thing to do. However, it has to come in stages. So what is the secret to keto for weight loss? Now saying that there's really a lack of large, either voluminous information or prolific information on losing weight, it does have to do with dropping carbs, but that is not the whole story. That's only part of the story. And if you're only looking for, if you're hoping you're going to be you're feeling lucky that you're going to be part of that 50% that gets the benefits from dropping the carbs. Good for you. I mean, you drop the carbs, drop the fat, and you increase your protein. But start increasing your protein after you dropped your carbs. The secret unequivocally is, let me give it to you a little bit differently, is having a structure. You need to do some preparation. You need to have some education and you need to be taught. These are basic components that diet that you have to have. And first of all, you, need, you do need that macro delineation of how your diet is. I know it seemed to really, really contrived. You've never thought about how many carbs you had or, or how many, you thought about calories. I haven't even mentioned calories, but you, that's all you thought before is calories. So calories is like a balloon. We'll take out some of the air and the balloon gets smaller. That's a pretty easy concept, but that's not how it works. Actually, it's not how it works at all. So by understanding and then tracking, you, I would say the best thing is to track what you're doing in life right now and notice that how much carbs you're having, what kind of carbs you're having, what kind of proteins are you having? I can't imagine you're a protein drink kind of person, but we now know that they're all over the place. A lot of people start their whole day off with smoothies. Oh, they're so proud of smoothies. And of course, you have the, the most stupid idea, which is, you know, the fatty coffee, dump all this fat in there and coffee. And so you have like 500 to 1,000 calories uh, for your morning and somehow you're supposed to be losing weight. You may feel great, but you're not going to be losing weight. Remember the objective here in this conversation was about losing weight. Okay then. So let's be smart about it. So you just need that prep and you need to be able to track and you need to be able to know in your mind to make these changes. So when physicians, health practitioners or people who think they know what they're doing with keto get tired of having to conjole people into tracking their macros, at least initially, not forever, by the way, just initially. It's an awareness sort of step that they'll say things like, oh, ke dirty keto is fine. What does dirty keto mean? Dirty keto means, ah, oh, you know, just have an idea that you're doing 25 grams of carbs a day and don't worry about being that specific. You don't have to track, forget about this tracking stuff. Tracking is for neurotics. The tracking isn't for everybody. If you have an eating disorder, I don't think I'd jump on with tracking with you. I think that would, we try to try a different approach. But then again, that's a minority. So with that minority, they would be treated differently. So dirty keto or lazy keto, you know, works for a percentage of people. And good for you if you think that's it. But what happens is when people fail, they don't want to try again. 
uh, we have a Facebook group and people will come in, I've been on keto for three years and I have this problem. And I go, all right, so give me an idea. Can you, what are your macros? Have you ever tracked your macros? No. Do you know how many carbs your grams of carbs you're taking per day? No. Okay. Which then means that I have no idea what they mean when they say they're doing keto. Usually I, I won't hear from them after I ask, have they tracked anything or have they measured? You know, what are your, your blood sugar readings? What are your ketone readings if they get that far? So there has to be some data. There has to be some common sense approach to doing this because this is so new. This is absolutely so new. I think it can be done. My meter in terms of what's the secret of keto is certainly dropping the carbs. It's taking the protein seriously and, and amping that up after you drop the carbs. And initially, if you want to increase the fat to get you through that adaptation period, we've talked about this before, then do that. But that's not a forever thing. That's certainly not a forever thing. You have to look at where is that going to take you. So you you have a lot of fat in your diet and somehow that's going to help you lose fat. Well, you've been brainwashed if you think of that. <laughs> if you believe that, you've definitely been brainwashed. I'm, I'm hoping to sort of inspire you to ask your own sort of common sense questions because your brain's as good as anybody else's and asking questions about your body, which you have to take care of. And I would encourage you to look at this opportunity to change your metabolism as if you are the proud owner of a very expensive car. So whether it's the Lamborghini or a Maserati or Ferrari or whatever, or Mercedes-Benz, whatever the thing is, or Porsche, you are that thing. And you are now going to correspondingly take it to a very expensive garage and you're going to have an adjustment. You're going in to get the tune-up. With this kind of respect for the garage telling you what you need to do on your car, I hope you look at yourself that way as well and don't just sort of say, oh, I'll cut down on the donuts. Well, that's a start, but why don't you look a little more deeply because you don't just take a portion to get an oil change. You don't just take a Ferrari and to get an oil change. It gets looked at. It gets realigned or, you know, they get very precise to keep it because it's the respect of, you have a nice operating piece of equipment here. Let's keep it in good shape for as long as possible. With that attitude, I think that's a great approach to one's own personal health. It, it is worth a deeper look. It is worth doing some of this uh, tedious stuff. And yeah, we didn't have to do this for like uh, 198,000 years because that's all we had was protein out there for the most part. And then when the protein disappeared over hunting, that's when a lot of the grains and the dairy and the beans and they all came into, and the corn, the maize came into our existence. So I hope that is helpful. The secret to losing weight on a ketogenic diet is both tracking and coming to an understanding, and also coming to an understanding that's only going to be 50% successful. And that's all we know in this last five years. We can't go back really 10 years. There's people who have been, quote unquote, eating meat only, call them carnivores if you will, but that's now become a, a mixed reference. They've been doing quite fine. And you go, well, there's a lot of common sense to that. And, and without going back to the Stone Age, you just can go back on Google and find those menus of 100 years ago and you realize, wow, they were eating like they ate 100 years ago. They weren't the Stone Age person. They weren't the Paleolithic kind of person. They were just whatever you call people in the 1800s kind of person. And that's it. So with that, I think next time I'm going to talk about why do people fail 
and how to correct the failures so they really get a nice, efficient transition into weight loss. It seems to be the most popular way for people to look at this orientation towards keto. And it has so many other benefits, anti-inflammatory and so on and so forth. I haven't gone into that. Usually that has to do with on a per-condition basis. And it's been so dramatic. But you need to have the foundations on which you can say, I got this down and it's not hurting me and I really love the food. And if you don't really love the way you're eating, it's going to be like you're in prison. And this isn't about you being in prison. This isn't about you being in a concentration camp and starving yourself. So yeah, fasting is a tool for extreme situations, but you don't have to do that. If you drop the carbs, your body actually goes through a fast. That's where the ketones come from. You fool the body into thinking you're fasting and you're not fasting and yet you're having great food. Sounds like a deal to me. So till next time. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.